So the scripture reading today comes from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 14 to 5, verse 10, and they're printed in your bulletins. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word and the wondrous truths that you teach us from it. And today, as we fix our eyes on Jesus, our great high priest, I pray, Lord, that our hearts will be open to hear your word, that it will be bear much fruit. And I pray, Lord, for your word to go forth powerfully through Andrew, and I pray, Lord, that you would give him clarity of thinking as he opens your scripture to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, please be seated. Well, good morning again. It's uh, quite a passage that we get to open here on this last Sunday of 2023. You know, the scriptures teach us, remind us to number our days, uh, to be reflective. And the end of the year is always one of those times for us to sort of pause a moment, take stock. What are you thinking about? Uh, what's on your mind, both as you look backwards and as you look forward? 
A lot has happened in 2023. You can go through various news outlets and, you know, top 10 stories of 2023 and uh, thinking about things like this ongoing war in Ukraine worldwide. And we're thinking about uh, Hamas and Israel and uh, the various things that go on there. Continue to think about, you know, the nature of a world where artificial intelligence is uh, gaining a hold. Um, we think about things in our personal lives. Uh, we just talked about, you know, Wilma Greening passing away. Others uh, of you have had significant losses in this last year. Perhaps um, a loved one has passed away and, and you've buried them. Uh, a, a, a hope has been dashed. You had a, uh, your heart set on a job or there's been a relationship failure and, and you're grieving that emptiness in your life. Others of us come to a time like today thinking about 2024 and you're thinking about the, the potentiality that exists in 2024. Maybe you have something exciting happening. You're, you're expecting a baby or you're getting married or uh, you're going to graduate and, and you're going to be moving on in life. Uh, you, you hope for a turnaround in something that has been difficult, but there, there are some hopeful signs in the future what is it that we are longing for? We, we bring these things to the end of the year and, and we offer them to the Lord. And in a very real sense, we, we enter into the story that, that we've been in as we're studying the book of Hebrews. We're entering into the life of this group of people who has so many of the same questions. Uh, they, they've experienced loss. They're undergoing persecution. Some of them are struggling in their own faith between belief and unbelief, as we saw last week, and, and trying to figure out, like, how do I hold fast to this confession? These words keep ringing out in terms of our study of the Hebrews. And, and through it all, this, this writer, this preacher, he keeps saying, Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus through the hard times, through the, through the loss, through the hurt, through the pain, through those moments when you think that you can't hold on anymore. You're not sure about taking the next step that is before you. Hold on to Jesus. Keep your eyes on Him when things are, are going well. When you are, are thriving, keep your eyes on Jesus at all times, uh, and you will find the one. You will find the confession. You will find the rock that you need to continue to go forward. We've been taking apart this sermon. Hebrews is a sermon. We're, we're noticing the uh, the preacher's strategy in going forward. He, he started big. He started with 
sort of his overarching proposition, the Word has become flesh. He is God's final spoken Word. He's entered into our world, and He is the one that we can put our hope in. And then he keeps going through and and saying, let me prove it to you. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. Uh, He is the champion that we need. He is the one that brings the promised rest. His next move is to begin to uh, uncover how Jesus is better than the priesthood. Uh, There's been some hints of it back in chapter 2, 17, also in chapter 3, verse 1. He has mentioned how Jesus is a high priest, but now, beginning where we are today, 4, 14, all the way to 10, 18, he is going to keep expounding this idea of why Jesus is the greatest high priest, why Jesus is better than the priesthood that was established in the Old Testament. Why does he do this? Partially because, remember, that was a temptation for this group of, of Hebrew Christians uh, in Italy and Rome. They, they were drawn to the more tangible at, uh, sort of exercise of faith that was in Judaism. Uh, they, were, they were losing grip on the unseen abilities of, of Jesus to, to really believe and trust on that, and they were wanting something that maybe had the sacrifices, that had the law, had a little bit more, uh, you know, realness to it. But the preacher is going to take a lot of time now, and he's going to say, no, Jesus is the better priest. Jesus is the, the one who has not only passed through the heavens, uh, he is the one who was the sacrifice as well, and you can trust your all on him. So I want to sort of give us an introduction to this. We're, we're going to keep coming back and forth with some of these themes. It, it may even feel a bit repetitive uh, in, in the next couple of weeks because we're going to be uh, sort of expounding these ideas of, of, of priesthood and how Jesus is the, the better priest. But let's get started today and, and see where we can go. Three things for you, and you may have to modify your outline here a little bit. Uh, one is we're going to first look at the Old Testament priesthood and remind ourselves of its importance and what it was all about. Secondly, we're going to look at a better priest. We're going to look at how Jesus supersedes the Old Testament priesthood. And then finally, we're going to look at uh, what it means for us, a, a bold approach to the throne of grace. So, the Old Testament priesthood. Some of you may have been around a few years ago when we were going through Exodus, uh, and and we talked a fair bit about the priesthood and, and, and what it represented for the people of God. Here we're reminded of a couple of things here, particularly in in verse five or chapter five, verse one. 
Just organizationally, the way that this preacher lays it out, he introduces and, and makes some claims in 4.14 to 16, and then 5.1 to 10, he seems to go through and uh, lay out sort of the outline for why he's claiming what he's claiming. So in 5.1, he, he reminds us that high priests are chosen from among men, uh, and they are appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. What was the role of a priest? There's an order to the priesthood. There's regular priests and there's high priests, but all of the priests uh, stand in this you know, the, the technical term for it is this liminal place, this place between, between God and between the people, and, and they represent God to the people, and they represent the people to God. Uh, and, and that's the role of the priest. The priest is the one who, who acts as the intermediary, who, who represents the people, who intercedes for the people. And, and that was their call. Uh, we're, we're told specifically uh, some of their duties, as you know, their, their duties involve uh, teaching. Leviticus 10.10 sort of lays out the job description for the priests where it says you are to help the people to make distinctions between the holy and the profane, between the clean and the common, and you are to teach the people of Israel. So part of what the priest's job was to is to help the people understand what God's will is, how he's laid it out, what it means for their life, what, what are the ways of right, what are the ways of wrong, what are the ways of justice, what are the ways of mercy, all of these different things. The priests had responsibility for making those distinctions uh, and, and for helping the people to make those distinctions. The priests also had responsibility for sacrifice. Uh, the, the various aspects of the cultic religion, the, the Israel Israelite religion, they would bring their animals, they would bring their food, they would bring all of these things to the tabernacle or later on to the temple. Uh, the priest would be the one who would offer sacrifice for the Lord or, or to the Lord on behalf of the people. And this was something that we say and we kind of buzz by it, but it was a really bloody affair. Uh, sometimes when you go back and you know, Josephus talks about uh, how many lambs were sacrificed during the Passover feast of, uh, in Jerusalem when, when Jesus was, was killed, you know, it's, it's like a crazy number of lambs. We're talking about thousands, tens of thousands of lambs sacrificed during a, a Passover time. And, and just think about one, you know, just the bleeding of a dying lamb. The blood that would pour from one lamb. But, but time after time after time, this is what the priests were involved in. You know, you can imagine how they process life. You can imagine how they, they scrub at their clothes to get the, the blood out of it. I mean, you can just imagine the smells, the sounds, everything that went on with the sacrifice. So when we say that the priest was involved in sacrifice... We can't just pass over that. 
And one of the things that's interesting about this, you know, we recognize with the Old Testament priesthood, you know, this was something that people didn't choose. Uh, They were called by God, verse 4. But they also were a a type of people. Uh, They were a type of people who were meant to, to care for the people that they were intermediaries between God and the congregation. You see that in in chapter 5, verse 2. The the priest dealt gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Uh, That's an interesting interesting comment. We don't see a lot of that in the Old Testament. You know, this kind of uh, description of the priest's heart towards the people, he dealt gently. If you remember, we we talked about the the priest's clothes when we were studying Exodus, and and we talked about how just his garments and, and the way that he carried all of that represented who he was. We talked about how there was a lot of similarities in his garments to the tabernacle. Uh, the priest became sort of a walking tabernacle who represented the presence of God to his people. And then he bore on his shoulders and near his heart you remember this? He bore the marks, uh, the names of the tribes of Israel. So, so this priest was meant to care for and to love, and, and as he's sacrificing, to, to bear the people gently before God. Why, why do I mention all of this? Well, the priesthood was a very loved position in the community. The priesthood was something that that held so much meaning for the community. But these priests had certain limitations. And and we see it there again in verse 2 of chapter 5. He was able to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. You see, the priests of the Old Testament were always aware of something, namely that in the exercise of their duties, they were no better than the people that they were representing. They were called to this position. They they were called, you know, one of the things that the the Old Testament Christians were, were so aware of was the holiness of God. And they knew that if you stepped into the holiness of God in, in an unrighteous way, you could be killed. You know, later on in, in Leviticus chapter 10 and 11, you have the story of Nadab and Abihu, these, these two priests who offered unholy fire to the Lord, and, and the fire of the Lord went out and consumed them. I mean, they, they saw in the Old Testament Korah, Dathan, and Byram, their, their rebellion and how the earth opened up and swallowed them along with their families. They, they knew that God was not safe. But the priests knew that as well. And so as they're slitting the animals' throats and as they're dealing in the blood and as they're smelling all of this, they're believing, they're making intercession but they're also reminded day by day by day how much they need that same intercession. And so you have 
this, this, uh, this institution, you have this order of people who are called to, to give a picture both of the need of the people as well as the, the promised provision of a sacrifice that would take away sin. You, you have this people who, who are, are portraying this daily before the people, but you also have a people who are made aware daily that it's not enough. There's another lamb to be killed and another lamb to be slaughtered and another and another and another and another. Will it ever stop? And that's where the writer to the Hebrews is, is going. He's saying, yes, there is a greater priest. There is a priest who has passed through the heavens. So now we're on to point two. There's a better priest. There's, there's one who has passed through. It's interesting, this language here of 414, uh, passed through the heavens. It, it reminds us that once a year, so most of the priests made their uh, sacrifices in, in, in one part of the tabernacle, but they weren't able to go into the, the, holy place, or the Holy of Holies. Once a year, the high priest would pass through and come to the Holy of Holies, and there he would make a sacrifice before the Lord on behalf of all the people. But here we're told we have a priest who has not only passed through the earthly tabernacle, but he has passed through the heavens. And he has come not just to the representation of the throne of grace, uh, the, the ark of the covenant with the angel's wings and the mercy seat, but he has come to the actual throne of grace. He has come uh, to the judgment seat of God himself. And he lives. He has not been consumed. He has not been burned up. We, we have a high priest who didn't just do the representative things that all of the Old Testament priesthood was pointing to, but he did the actual thing that we all need and long for. He passed through the heavens to the mercy seat, the place of judgment, the place of mercy, and there he has made suit for us. Why? Because unlike the, the earthly priests who had their own sin to pay for, this heavenly priest was perfect. He, was, he had no sin, being made perfect in verse 9. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Or in verse uh, 15 of chapter 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin." He is the, the one who didn't have to pay for his own sin. He didn't have to uh, atone for, he didn't have to make sacrifice to atone for his own sin. He, he had no sin to atone for. He was the perfect spotless lamb. 
And when he died on Calvary's tree, he became the once and for all final sacrifice. And we're going to come back to this over and over again in the book of Hebrews. So he, he passed through the heavens, and, and he has made atonement at the mercy seat of God. And he was able to do so because he was perfect. He had no sin of his own to atone for. He could make atonement for the sins of others, thus becoming the great high priest, the final sacrifice. And he did it in such a way that he was able to be the ultimate compassionate, empathetic, sympathetic high priest. You see a lot of that here in this uh, particular text. Uh, we, we touched on it already in verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to, to sympathize. That, that doesn't mean like a, <coughs> sorry, the, the term sympathize there doesn't mean in a psychological sense. It, it means in a physical uh, empathetic sense, like he's walked in our shoes and, and he knows what it is that we are facing. He knows what it is that this congregation is facing as they live in a Roman empire that is making people slaves, that is persecuting, that is undergoing all of these different things. Jesus knows what that is. Uh, he's been tested. He has been tried, uh, and, and he recognizes our frailty. He recognizes our weaknesses, comes back to it in, in seven, uh, 5 verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. You know, this is what the, the, the writer, the preacher, he wants the congregation to understand. Like, when you pray to God, you, you are going to somebody who has been in your shoes, and, and he knows what you're going through. Have you ever felt that nobody understands me? Nobody knows what I'm going through? This, this feels like the most unique sort of temptation or testing that could ever have happened. Have you ever felt that way? Jesus knows. He, he knows what you are going through. Now, now, what does that mean? We have to talk just a little bit about 4.15, uh, where it says that he has been uh, tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. This picks up uh, we saw this a little bit earlier um, in, in the, uh, losing it right now, we saw it a little bit earlier in the book where he, he made a similar thing. Jesus sympathized with us having gone through everything that we have gone through. What does that mean in terms of temptations, testing, all of these things? A couple of distinctions just to draw for you. One, there, there are, are temptations and testings that come from without. Uh, 
that have uh, nothing to do with who we are on the inside. Um, there are, you know, trials of faith when, when something happens in our life. Uh, there are things that are put before us uh, that, uh, that can tempt us or test us. We certainly see this with Jesus as he went through the temptations in the wilderness, the testing in the wilderness, uh, where, you know, Satan offered him power, where, where Satan offered him uh, to, to, to uh, fill his own physical needs by turning the stones to bread, those types of things. There are also temptations that come from within. Uh, and, and these temptations, in our case, are, are, are brought about because we are sinful, uh, we have a sinful nature, and, and so we, we want to lurch up at various things in the world. Now, we know that Jesus didn't have a sinful nature. Uh, we, we recognize that he, he didn't have those types of temptations. Uh, we recognize also that he was, you know, when he passed away, he was a 30-year-old unmarried man. Uh, so he he didn't know everything of of what it meant to be a woman in the flesh, uh, for instance. He didn't know everything of what it meant to be married in the flesh, for instance. Uh, so what is the saying here? There there are differences between Jesus and us. Uh, how do we begin to understand these things? What we understand, and I like how uh, I believe it's Kent Hughes puts this, he says he exp- it, it does not mean that he experienced every individual temptation that we do. He did not experience specific temptations, particular to women or married people or the elderly, uh, as he died at 30 years old. Neither did he experience the temptations that come from having already sinned. But he did experience the essential temptations that cover, and in this case, supersede whatever we may experience. Now, why why does he say supersede? Because one of the things that that we have to understand about Jesus' temptations is that they were more intense than anything that we have ever endured. Now, why do I say that? Well, at some point in, in my tempting or in my testing, I either have given in and succumbed or I haven't reached the end of that testing yet. So it has not reached its zenith in my life, or I have succumbed at any point. But Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus was tempted and was without sin. The, the magnification of the, of the testing for him blows the mind of what we could possibly have talked about in terms of our own enduring. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, we never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside of us until we try to fight it. Isn't that true? So are you making any New Year's resolutions this year? 
Uh, so, you know, make, make the New Year's resolution, one of my friends uh, was talking about, making the New Year's resolution to not complain about anything. Anybody in on that one? So how long do you think before you f- begin to feel the intensity of that? Five minutes? <laughs> you know, now, now let's say that you withstand the intensity of that for a day. What's day two going to be like? Day three, day four, day five. You get the idea. I mean, it, it continues to build in intensity uh, as we seek to stand against it. So Lewis says, we never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside of us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows uh, to the full what temptation means. Jesus is the only complete realist when it comes to that. He, he's the better priest. Not only does he have no sin to, uh, to atone for on his own, but he knows. He, he knows because he has undergone and he has withstood. He knows the temptations. He knows the, the weakness of our flesh. He knows how hard it is. And think about what an encouragement this must have been to these Hebrew Christians who every day, because of the persecution, were tempted to go back to something that seemed easier, that seemed more real, that seemed more tangible. Jesus knows, and you can bring it to Him. That's really the third thing. And for this preacher, as he is developing this, it, it's the first thing, because he, he's telling us in, in verses 14 to 16, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Since this is true, let's hold fast to our confession. And again, I just want to emphasize this. Uh, I, I spent some time at the Campus Outreach New Year's Conference this week. Uh, they're doing a great job, by the way. It was really encouraging to see over 900 college students together, worshiping, uh, being confronted with the gospel. Uh, Kenny texted me and he said, you know, be praying for these couple of students that we have from West Michigan. One seems really close to to receiving Christ. There's another who's really wrestling with lifestyle choices and, and coming through. But as I was talking to them in the seminar that I did, one of the things that we were talking about is the importance of of finding a church that has a, a, a theology, a doctrine, a worldview that can make sense of all of life. And, and this is what this preacher keeps saying to the people. He's saying, you have a confession. You have a creed. You have a doctrine. And, and it's this doctrine that is going to enable you to practically live things out. And I think sometimes we, we underestimate the importance of, you know, being doctrinally sound. But 
if you read through the New Testament, I mean, this is how it works. You know, the, here we see it in Hebrews. He keeps saying, like, I am going to give you doctrine, and this doctrine is going to be the basis for your lifestyle. What did we see in Ephesians? Ephesians 1 to 3 starts with high Christology doctrine that then leads chapters 4 to 6 to practical application. You know, what do we see in, uh, in Romans? Romans is all about like living a life and, and being a community, but it all flows out of doctrine. Yeah, so over and over again in the New Testament, we see the importance of this, and he's saying strive for that. And there are a lot of churches in this city that have good doctrine, uh, but, but we do need to think about that. We need to think about the importance of the confession that we hold. Is it going to hold? You know, when the bad times come. You know, there's a lot of uh, what passes for Christianity out there, for instance, that, that just says, if you believe Jesus, then you're going to be blessed, 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 blessed. But what happens when, you know, you undergo something and it's really hard <laughs> and, and it doesn't feel like blessing? You, know, you, you have to be able to put all that together. So he, he encourages them to hold fast their confession, and by doing that, uh, we then have confidence, verse 6, to draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. This is really astounding. Now, there is, there is so much in, in this passage. Uh, I just really commend you to, to take it apart uh, and, and really like hard candy suck on it over this week, you know, just almost verse by verse or chunk by chunk, that chunk in 5, 7 to 9 where it's talking about Jesus. There, there is so much encouragement there and so much life. But this chunk here in, in 4, 14, 15, and 16, I mean, there's so much there to, to glean and to get out of. This verse here, uh, chapter, or verse 16, you know, let us then with confidence or with boldness draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because of the priesthood of Jesus, what the preacher is telling the church uh, to the Hebrews is that you yourselves become priests. Do, do you see the, the move that he's making here? There's, there's a lot about homiletics when we study uh, Hebrews. But, but here he's saying, let, let's take this proposition. Uh, if Jesus has passed through the heavens and he's completed the work, and then if, if you yourself, through faith, are so united to Jesus that you share in this finished work, you yourself become a priest and you can come boldly to the throne of grace. In the Old Testament, it was only the high priest and only once a year who was able to approach the mercy seat. And it was only as he was carrying the blood and he was sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat that that, that high priest was able to come. But now, 
because of Jesus, because he is the great high priest who has passed through the heavens, and now because of our faith in him and in his finished work, and now because he, his righteousness, we are clothed in that. We are given his high priestly robe. He's saying you can approach the mercy seat. You can approach the throne of grace, and you can find grace to help in the time of need. Can you imagine what this meant for the people? They were thinking about going back to the sacrificial system. They were thinking to go back to priests and intermediaries. And what he's saying is, no, in Christ, you can approach the throne of grace. Now, I know we talk about that a lot, but it's good for us to just stop and think about what that meant for them and then to say, what does that mean for us? Because this is absolutely stupendous. This is amazing. This is incredible. This is the gospel. That through faith in Jesus, we are clothed in his righteousness, and that righteousness enables us to go to the mercy seat, and not timidly, but boldly, with confidence, to pray the most audacious prayers. There's a goal for you in 2024. You know, to, to ramp up the audaciousness of your prayers. Why? Because you are theologically sound. Because you understand what it is that Christ has done. You understand what it is that that affords you, the access to the throne of grace. I've been challenged by that this week. I, I think, you know, I... I pray, I pray for my kids, I pray for you, I, I pray for my wife, I pray for the world, I confess my own sin, I, I think about all of that, but when I think about the mercy that is here, I just realize that my prayers are tepid. They, they are lacking in the boldness and the confidence and the audaciousness that this text invites from us. Will you join me this year in, in bold praying? Not because we in ourselves have earned this, but because of who Jesus is. The last thing that I'll just highlight for you, and I, and I think must have been true for, um, for the Hebrew Christians, for this group of people to whom uh, this preacher is preaching when we understand that we ourselves are, are priests, and, and this is the, the Reformation doctrine of the priesthood of all believers, right? Uh, that, that we don't need a curate, we don't need uh, intermediaries anymore, that we, we recognize that we have access to the throne of grace, we recognize that we come together, we recognize that we minister to each other, you know, this is something that's, that's really key. You know, I, as the minister, I, I have a role, but, but you don't need me 
to absolve your sins. You know, you can confess your sins to one another. You, you can speak God's grace. You can speak God, God's absolution to uh, one another. We, we operate on this priesthood of all believers. And, and can you imagine for this first century group of Christians what it meant for them not only to approach the throne of grace for, them, for themselves, but to approach the throne of grace on behalf of the world that they lived in. Because ultimately, when we understand uh, that the New Testament, that, that the finished work of Christ extends the priestly status to all of God's people, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, we, we all share in this priestly status. We recognize that it's not only a matter between God and ourselves, but it also has an outward-facing dimension. Here's how Christopher Wright puts it. According to 1 Peter 2, 9-12, and a number of other places, we are called to be God's priesthood to both declare and to live the truth that is in Christ. There is a story to be told. Since we have had our exodus experience of deliverance from darkness to life, and there is life to be lived in the midst of the nations, so that they too may come to glorify God. You see, in the midst of all of that troubles us, God says, I am giving you grace not only to persevere, but I am giving you grace to testify, to declare to see the very people who are putting you in chains like Paul come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because you are declaring to them. To see the nurses and the doctors as you go into the hospital and you're undergoing this trial. To be able to testify to God's grace in the midst of that trial. To be able to testify to God's grace as we struggle in our marriages and in our home life. And we talk about how God is meeting us in the midst of the devastation and the ruin that we are undergoing. This this is what it means to be a priest. And this is what the beauty and the grace of God are doing in the lives of all who will surrender to him and his finished work. God is so kind, so beautiful, so lovely. I want to finish just with a quote from a theologian by the name of Donald McLeod, just talking about the finished work of Christ and its beauty, and I hope it encourages you. Mankind, spiritually bankrupt, has nothing to offer, nothing to offer, but God. Prompted by pure grace, drawing on His eternal wisdom, prepares a council of salvation in which the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are united in redeeming love and pity for the human race. The triune God resolves to save the world, to accept the good offices of a mediator who shall act for mankind as their representative and suffer for them as their substitute. So accommodating is the divine will and so predisposed to forgive our transgressions. But the three-in-one acting to save the world goes even further. They resolve that this salvation, uh, blah, 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 where to go? They resolve that this salvation shall be free to the human race. It will cost us nothing. For them, it will be an act of pure love and mercy 
From sinners as such, no satisfaction will be required. Instead, everything will flow from the loving kindness of God. He will bear the whole cost. He will provide the one who will take the sinner's place. But he will go even further. And he will become the one who takes the sinner's place. He will become the lamb that is slain. God the Son will suffer for the world's sin. God the Father will suffer in the Son's pain. God the Holy Spirit will share in the pain of both. At Gethsemane and Golgotha, the three will be one. As God, not sparing himself, takes blood, his own blood, and he sheds it to redeem the world. So great is his loving kindness for you and for me. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this plan. We thank you for this priest. We thank you for the one who has passed through the heavens. We thank you for the access that we have to the throne of grace. Lord, forgive us for focusing often much, too much on our pain and brokenness, for forgetting the the, the finality of what you have done on our behalf. Thank you, Jesus, for being a high priest who can sympathize with us uh, through and through. We pray that you would uh, continue to enlarge our hearts. You know, as we, we sang earlier, come to our hearts, Lord Jesus. We, we know that, that you are, are throughout this universe. And Lord, we pray that you would enlarge our hearts to, to receive, to understand, to hold fast our confession, that we would continue to, to dive deep into this, this finished work, this truth, to apply it to our lives. Lord, we pray for any that are here this morning uh, who are particularly struggling. Um, Lord, we, we know that belief and unbelief, uh, they're, they're so tricky, and, and sometimes we, we can slip from one to the other. Pray that you would reestablish yourself as the primal beauty uh, for those that are in the midst of that, especially for those maybe who have, who have never acknowledged a belief in you. Lord, we ask that, that their hearts today may be drawn to the beauty of a God who offers grace at no cost to us who have sinned, who have rebelled, but extends mercy and grace through a mediator, Jesus Christ. Lord, may this be our confidence even as we approach your throne. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.